shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Listening to the Outer Edge. I'm Tim Schwartz with William Michael Mott. Welcome. It's another. Well, let's see. Sunday night for you, Mike's Monday morning for me. Wow. Already. Already. I I'll know. catch up with you soon, though. <laughs> I'm in my time machine. I'm heading your way. That's right. Well, another week has passed, and and here we are, back again. Yes, indeed. And uh, <laughs> what an interesting week it was. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I've got something interesting for you. Now, uh, last week we we had on Dr. Uh, David Mantic, uh, who was talking about his research on the x-rays of JFK, the autopsy x-rays of uh, John F. Kennedy. Right. So that next morning, I got up uh, and... Uh, uh, Got my cup of coffee and uh, turned on the television to uh, uh, catch a quick glimpse of the uh, local news. And the the, the satellite was on a, a different channel. And the first thing that popped up is an interview with Dr. Mantic talking about his autopsy research on hmm. uh, JFK's uh, uh, x-rays. <laughs> That's pretty wild. It is. It is. I, I it, and it turned out that the uh, the satellite was set on the History Channel, and it was a uh, a, a program about the JFK assassination. I had no idea it was going to be on, and it was just this wild coincidence. But I mean, the first thing that popped up was uh, Doctor Mantic being interviewed about his research. Well, gee, I, I, like, I guess wow. that may, must be a sign then, huh? It must be a sign that he's onto something. Could be, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll have to tell this to Tim Beckley because Tim Beckley's really into uh, uh, synchronicity, right? And uh, uh, meaningful coincidences like that. But uh, it's just, uh, I, I had no idea that uh, uh, that this show was going to be on, or that uh, Doctor Mantic was going to be on it. So uh, it was just, <laughs> yeah, uh, it kind of floored me. Well, listen, speaking of Tim Beckley, isn't there some news that you have about uh, something that you're working on with Tim Beckley? Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, we uh, um, we started our new uh, uh, program uh, exploring the uh, the bizarre on, uh, I'll say this, another network. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Our so first, you, so our first gonna... episode was, uh, was, uh, Thursday, was Thursday night. That was, was the very first one. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. So you got you guys. So you are now doing two shows. Yes, yes. Well, is it I mean, weekly or, or yes, yeah. It's a it's a it's a weekly program. Okay, cool. And uh, you know, uh, Tim Beckley is is really. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's he's the draw. Uh, you know, I mean, he's he's the major host of this. I mean, I'm just kind of along along for the ride. I suppose I'm uh, I'm I'm Tim Beckley's Ed McMahon. <laughs> I don't know about that, dude. But I, 
do know. <laughs> that is correct, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, Beckley has decades and decades and decades of, ex- of exposure and experience in the whole paranormal field, not just UFOs. So, um, I'm sure he'll, you'll have no, you'll have an endless supply of interesting guests. Kind of like yes. we do here. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's hard to say, you know, how the show will go. Uh, <laughs> you know, after, uh, after this, uh, after this first one. So, I mean, it, uh, the, there'll be a little bit of a learning curve. Um, as it, uh, you know, it's, it's a somewhat of a different format than, than, than our program. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, you know, anytime, anytime you're with, uh, uh Tim Beckley, you know that you're in for a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's new and interesting, uh, uh, on, uh, 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 your neck of the internet? Well, you know, just, uh. Trying to get stuff out there, trying to get uh, exposure for the work that's already been done. Um, got some new things going on too. I'm not going to talk about that yet, but I do have some new blades coming out, new blade designs, uh, which is kind of cool. Even my son has one coming out. Um, really? He's yeah, that he's designed is very very cool, and I'll have more information about that in the future. Um, and one thing I did want to talk about was I got a uh, a message from Walter Bosley. And he had sent me a link to a, a video, which was actually on YouTube, but it was made by Vice, Vice TV or Vice Magazine or whatever. Right. And yeah. it was a look at the real story behind the first season of uh, HBO's True Detective. Okay. Um, it's, it's a real look at the ritual, um, satanic cult that was doing ritualistic uh, child molestation, animal sacrifice, and and all this kind of stuff, and. That is actually the basis for that first episode, or first season, I should say, of mm-hmm. True, a True Detective. But, uh, which by the way, I have not seen yet, but I've heard about it. I started to say I haven't had a chance to see it either. Well, I, I know that they, they try to tie into, uh, Chambers, uh, King in Yellow and all that stuff, which of course had nothing to do at all with what really happened. But the video is called The Real True Detective with question mark. Um, and it's on, uh, uh, YouTube. And I recommend it because, you know, when you talk to somebody like J.C. Johnson and other researchers in the field who have had exposure to non-human beings, um, they'll talk about the skinwalkers, for instance, who can shapeshift between a human and animal or animalistic beings. And they'll talk about, uh, um, you know, people who believe in the Lugaru and which is, again, in the, you know, in Louisiana, the Lugaru is a, is a person who is, who is, has sold his or her soul. And is doing, gotten involved in ritualistic stuff and is then possessed and can turn into this wolf-like creature or humanoid. And then you look at all the stuff that Linda Godfrey has seen up in the, in, in uh, the Wisconsin and, and Minnesota area and other places where people are seeing these humanoids that, that are part animal and part human or, or seem to be. And there's one part of this video where they're interviewing this, uh, the so-called pastor, the guy who was leading this cult. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how the rituals they would do would open up uh, doorways or pathways for very overpowering uh, demonic entities to enter their bodies and take mm. total control. And then they would physically change. And the detective was like, "You mean what do you mean you would change? You mean you would change, really, truly change? Your body would change? He said, yes. He said, physiologically or, or physically we would change. And he described the animalistic characteristics growing, you know, wolf-like hair and 
wolf-like characteristics or or snake skin or you know different things that would happen to them when they were doing these rituals. So this is not the first time I've heard of this. I've heard of this before um, from people who actually told me that they had witnessed these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I have to wonder then if there are not people who get so involved with this stuff that they can't ever escape it. In other words, they do it so much that whatever it is that is is behind the transformation just decides it's not going to leave. Right. And then they, they have no choice but to go live in the woods. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, isn't isn't that what the whole, like, uh, say, the Wendigo uh, mythology yeah. is about? Sure, and absolutely. So, someone gets gets possessed by the Wendigo, and they go and they disappear out into the wilderness, never to return again, or at least not return as a human. To, only to prey on people. Right, and, right. Yeah, so, so this is very interesting. Um, it, it's just a brief passage in the whole thing. Where he talks about this and and how they would actually physically change when they were under this extreme uh, ritualistic demonic possession, but it, it's called the Real True Detective, and it's a Vice TV thing on YouTube. So go look for it because it's uh, it's definitely an eye opener. Well, that really does. I mean, that plays right along with the whole uh, legends of uh that that you know the native americans had about uh, the skinwalkers and other you know like black magicians uh and then of course you know the whole, the the gosh centuries of european legends of uh, uh of werewolves and the the loup garou and of course now see the uh the 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 french they believed that a loup garou could be any kind of animal not just you know, not just a wolf. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that, that these people were were engaging in in ritualistic uh, sexual um, uh, rituals, uh, ritualistic rituals. That makes a lot of sense. They, <laughs> sexual activity, ritualistic sexual activity with children is what they were doing, mm-hmm. and they claimed that that opened up the pathway for these demonic entities to take over their bodies. Um, so basically, this is something that you'll that you'll see in occult literature, and you'll you'll actually hear accounts of this. And uh, I mean, they had to the the pastor and the youth pastor both eventually confessed. I mean, they they confessed that they were doing these things, and they were convicted on the basis of their confessions more than anything else. So I mean, why would you why would you com- confess these things and get a conviction unless you were you know telling the truth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they had some pretty disturbing stuff. There were some pretty disturbing drawings that the children had done and things like that. You know, and you hear people saying, oh, you know, that's just a big scare. You know, Satanism and daycare centers and churches and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's just a big, it's all it's all bull, you know. Well, apparently not. Um, you, you remember the McMartin preschool uh, case? Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. people people still argue about that, whether it was hysteria or whether it really happened. I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know. But looking at this particular incident, at this uh, uh, thing that happened at, uh, I believe it was called the Hosanna Church in Ponchatoula, Louisiana. Um, Yeah, obviously it does go on. It does happen. And there are people who are willing to do anything for this supernatural experience that is very negative and ultimately will destroy them. They don't, they, you know what I mean? They, there's, I I got, to me, they're thrill seekers. Mm -hmm. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have no doubt that, that 
there were actual incidents, you know, like you were talking, uh, referring to, like, you know, the, uh, not necessarily the, the McMartin. Right. Uh, pre- preschool. I think a lot of the, uh, the majority of those cases were simply hysteria. I th- yeah, I think they were too. Yeah. I, and, and but there, there are others that I don't think, I mean, I think were actual, um, Sure. Actual incidents. Well, you and I were talking before the show and, you know, and I even talked about this some in, in my book that, you know, that, uh, in book Cavers Cultures of Concealed Creatures. That's which book I'm talking about, of course. But mm-hmm. there, there were, in, there have been incidents where people have encountered serial killers who they say physically seem to change. You know, their eyes go jet black, um, their faces elongate or something and don't look human, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And, uh, so there you go. I mean, I mean, this is one of those things where, there's something going on for sure with some of this stuff. Well, you hear time and time again um, with some of these serial killers, um, and especially the ones who are sexual predators, um, where, say, like neighbors and friends and family will just be, uh, uh, they'll just be aghast. I mean, they're, they're so surprised when they find out it's this person. Because they just, you know, the the person would just, I mean, they they seem so normal, uh, you know, church going. I mean, had a good job, had a family, yet they had this this dark side that would seemingly take over them, yeah, and just and just seem so completely out of character with them. Yet there was no doubt that it was them when they were finally caught. That had been, you know, the the, the perpetrators of well, these, you know, sure. Uh, well, don't, well, don't don't forget how many of these guys actually have talked about, you know, being willingly possessed by something or being told to do what they did by something else. Even you know, Son of Sam comes to mind with his mm-hmm. whole dog devil whatever talking to him, telling him what to do. You know, but even more than that, there are others who have you know said that it was a lot, you know, it, it more close and personal than that. Their encounters with these things that control them now that could be a cop-out for some of these guys you know i'm going to blame mm-hmm. it on i'm going to blame it on some you know disembodied discarnate entity so that i don't have to take the whole blame and I'll always have an excuse and i think there's probably some of that too but oh, yeah. but you know ultimately what it gets down to is this it in my estimation whether it's uh paranormal or whether it's just the evil of the human heart which is pretty pretty strong um anybody who for any reason hurts a child is lower than an animal, lower than the lowest scum. I mean, that anybody that would engage in that activity deserves to be drawn and quartered, or, or skinned, skinned and thrown in some fire ants or something. I mean, that that's that's something that you know. If you do that, you deserve whatever you know, whatever comes your way. So. Mm-hmm. No, you're not going to get an argument uh, with me on that, you know. But uh, unfortunately, we have seen people like that from the beginning of time. I mean, yes, there, yes. There, there, there always seems to be people who are predators of other people. Well, think about this, Tim. There's an entire region of the Middle East right now that is controlled by a group called ISIS. Mm-hmm. And they are regularly marrying and sexually molesting little girls six years old, seven years old, nine years old. Um, and they make a statement. I know the New York, New York Times did a 
story about it recently, and you can find it online. But they basically make statements like, if the child is old enough to engage in the activity, well, who decides that? These guys do. These mm. these pervert rapists, pieces of crap. So, you know, they're doing it in a legalized system that they've set up. Where they've got rules and they've got, and they, and they, and they cloak it in religious garb and they praise Allah before the act and then afterwards they go into this big praising Allah spiel where they're praying to their moon god and they're, cause that's who Allah is, you know, he's really Al Ilya, the god of the moon. They're, 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 they're doing this stuff and they're disguising it as religion. Mm-hmm. You know, and using religion as their excuse for their murders, their atrocities of all types that they do, not just the, the child molestation, but all the other evil things that they do. <laughs> yeah, well, once again, something we've seen throughout history. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, what better way to justify your actions than uh, uh, saying God told me to do it? That's right. Fact, there, there, there's a, there was, there's a movie. Uh, with that title, God told me to do it. An excellent movie along these lines, with the twist to it, is a movie called Frailty. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, and yeah, that's, also, oh, that's a disturbing movie. By oh, it's the way. a really, really good movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who knows what's true and what's not? You know. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a very interesting look at it. And another very good film that I recently saw, just the other night, by coincidence, flipping around, um, it's a movie called Borderland. And this is the true story, or based on the true story, of the uh, Mexican drug cartel that was headed up by a by a guy who considered himself a brujo or a a sorcerer, hmm, and and he was he was sacrificing uh, human beings in rituals to give him power over the police and to make himself and his vehicles and his 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 drug dealings invisible into broad daylight and all this kind of stuff. And people kept disappearing. And finally he grabbed an American from a group of Americans that were down there. And then it's about how they were trying to find this guy and, and everything that happened. It, it's very interesting because it, sh- it showed great in great detail the ritualistic blood stuff that people like this do and the beliefs that they have about what the powers it will give them and things of this nature. Now, it's a very violent film. But, again, it is based on uh, a true story. It's called Borderland. And I, I was really surprised at how good it was. Yeah, and I see. I I remember when that came out, but I haven't uh, I haven't seen that one. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll have to check that out now. It sounds interesting. Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. Well, hey, Mike, uh, we're uh, we're coming up at the uh, twenty minute mark into our show, so I think that uh, we should probably uh, go to our break and uh, and bring our guest in. So now, who's our guest tonight? Our guest tonight is an old friend of the show. I guess you could say, or the pre-show, or the past show. Uh, <laughs> um, we're going to have Rick Osman on the show tonight. Rick used to be on PSN Radio Network and has gone on to do other things now and has some books out and, and is on a speaking tour and, and is exploring various sites and just a really interesting cat, very talented guy. So we're going to be talking to Rick Osman when we come back from break. All right, fantastic. Gosh, I haven't talked to Rick in quite a while, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. All right, well, let's go ahead and do our break. So you are listening to The Outer Edge. Edge, edge, edge. (laughs) (laughs) On the PSN Radio Network, I'm Tim Swartz. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with our guest, Rick Osmond.
still begs for change Mama won't say his name We like to talk about him every holiday My friends are moved away Music just ain't the same We like to talk about him every holiday Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom built computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 954-973-3374 that's 954-973-3374 or visit keyinformation.com Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to Mr. UFO 8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M-R-U-F-O, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO 8 at hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person, and if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. We're rewarding you for something you already do, listening to us. It's Radio Loyalty, and it's an easy way for you to get free stuff. All you do is sign up. Go ahead and click the banner now. You'll learn points as you listen, points you can trade in for great products and services in the Radio Loyalty store. You can earn even more points when you share your favorite station with friends on Facebook and Twitter. Radio Loyalty, it's free to sign up, so click the banner to join now. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio.
Welcome back to The Outer Edge. It is September the 7th now, pretty much where Tim and I both are. I think I'm here. Um, anyway. Yes, you're here. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> or, or up there, one or the other. I'm somewhere inside the space. But we are now uh, pleased to, to announce that uh, our good friend Rick Osmond is on the line. Hey, Rick, how are you? I'm hot. <laughs> I'm hot and sweaty, but I'll for it. Yes, it's it's uh, 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 nice and and um, warm here in southern Indiana. Rick, Rick, and Rick and I—I I mean, we we don't live too far apart from each other. Uh, so, I mean, it, if it's hot where Rick is, it's hot where I am, and yes. I concur. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's definitely. But we'll get warm. over that all too soon, and I'll be looking for something to burn. But yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> from one well, extreme it, to the other. In case the listeners out there don't know, if they have short memories or if they're newcomers, Rick is the guy, one of the two guys, who got me into doing radio shows instead of just as a guest. At first, they had me on as a guest on Unraveling the Secrets years ago, and then asked me to come on and be a co-host with them. And then after that, after Rick, uh, Tim and I both worked with Rick on Unraveling for a while, and then after that... Uh, Rick went off and did his own thing for, and has been doing ever since. And Tim and I moved from one show to another, and so here we are. And uh, uh, yeah, Rick really kind of kicked this whole thing off for me. So I appreciate that. You're welcome to the addictive enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it truly is addictive. I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, people think we're rich and famous. Well, probably neither one of those, but it's a lot of fun. It is fun, and you meet a lot of cool people, and you get to talk about a lot of things that that uh, really need to be talked about sometimes. Yep. Well, just just think about it, though. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to do a program like this, you would have to approach your local, you know, like uh, AM FM station, and and probably give them money. Uh, for like some kind of ungodly, usually like a Saturday or Sunday, uh, early Sunday morning, late Sunday night time slot to do something. But, but now thanks to the internet, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 the whole internet radio has, has really just exploded with webcast. It has. It hasn't improved the quality much. <laughs> well, <laughs> yep. It, exactly. ha- it has improved the variety a great deal. The choices that one can make on listening, you know, pick your genre. Anything from music to, and I'm talking top 40 stuff, on down to uh, nobody's going to listen to this anyplace else. <laughs> and talk shows from one end of the spectrum to the other. And, mm-hmm. and not only in content, but in quality. And some of the low quality ones are actually funny enough to get your attention for a while. <laughs> well, Rick, um, I, I know that uh, you've been busy. Every now and then I go look at your Facebook page to see what you're up to. Why don't you kind of fill us in on what's been going on? Well, uh, let's see. The second edition of my book, The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley, came out um, around the first week of August, and sales are picking up as we speak. But, you know, I can always use a few more. Um <laughs> And it, it's been a long road on that one, too, because it came out right at uh, four years ago, I guess. 
yeah. for the first edition. And there were printing errors and all kinds of stuff in there that, you know, I didn't know because I'd never put out a book before. Yeah. And uh, it, it got challenging for a while. The second edition was much easier. So did you add new material also, new finds? Yep. yep. There's new material, um, new cover, um, new layout. And basically the, the basic information all remained. Um, and the superfluous information remained as well. I just added to all that, really. Right. Well, you and I have the same publisher, basically. I mean, I, almost all my books are published by uh, Grave Distractions, and and uh, that's a good outfit to work with. Yeah, They're I love great. working with Brian. He was he was part of Unraveling for a while. Yes, too. he was. He sure was. In fact, that's how I met Brian. Yep. So see, there you go. <laughs> So now, uh, is your your new edition available as a, a, a print book, ebook, both? All of the above, and then all so. of the above, and then so okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't yet have a qualified and authorized um, audio edition. There's an unauthorized audio edition out there, but huh. that, that's a whole story unto itself. And that sounds like a story unto itself. Well, somebody just took it upon themselves to read your book out loud and record it? No, they they um, captured a video and audio at a concert, at a oh. presentation I gave. Oh my goodness, that's not cool. Mm. I didn't think it was very cool. We're still finding out just exactly what to do with it, but uh, well, well, are they are they are they trying to sell it for for money? Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, that's not cool. That's no, that's not cool. not cool. Yeah. Not in my no. opinion, but I'm not thinking. No. Uh, you, don't re- you don't recall citing a release for that, right? I, I am sure I did not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- no, that's I, think, some... I gave up drinking a long time ago. I didn't sign anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's something that we have talked about. You know, Mike and I have talked about before, you know, here with the digital world. I mean, it has... Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, there's, there's a lot of wonderful things about it, but there's some uh, bad things as well, and this is a perfect example. You know, I mean, you're, somebody goes and uh, videotapes you like that and uh, makes it available uh, to profit them, and you're just kind of left twisted in the wind. Yeah, and it shows up on your author page on Amazon as being one of your works that you did not do anything on and oh wait you're not collecting anything for it either not cool yeah well and then you try to complain and you don't get any response that's about the size of it yeah but as far as the print and e-edition yeah it's on amazon kindle and in print as well as uh, barnes and noble in print and their what is it nook well do you think that it's helped uh helped get exposure for your book uh, not significantly, no. It hasn't right. sold many copies. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine bought about a third of them with one. So hmm. it, it, it's not that it's making a lot of money. It's more the principle of the thing. Sure. Yeah, sure. They also had the video on YouTube with ads. So I don't know what to do. I will, I, I will tell you guys this, and, and this is going back for years and years. I used to have Google ads on my website and I know for a fact I was getting a lot of click throughs 
on those ads. Never got one cent from Google. Ten years ago, it said I had fifty-two dollars uh, worth of transactions, and they were going to pay me as soon as it hits a hundred dollars. Well, I said, okay, I'll give it a little while. I did. It never turned out to anything, and I, I know for a fact it was getting click-throughs because people were telling me they were clicking it. So, basically, you know, just to see what would happen. <laughs> so, basically, um, they own. They now own YouTube. Yep, right. And this, this, the the AdSense, Google AdSense collects your your uh, your your money supposedly for ads that you run on your videos, and it goes to your AdSense account, which is the same one that you have. Like I say, if you have Google Ads or if you had it on your site, it's just going to add it to the same pool of money supposedly. Right. So I've got like hundreds and thousands of hits with some of these videos that have ads on them, and I'll go and check my AdSense account and it's and in the last 10 years it's gone from $52 to $54, $55. (laughs) Now you can't tell me that there's not something wrong with this picture. Yeah, there is something wrong with that picture. Yeah. Um, And they're extremely sensitive about uh, oversensitive would be the right word Mm -hmm. about how many times you click on whatever. Including looking at your own video, if, right? If it's got a auto run ad, yeah. That's uh, that's that's what happened to uh, uh, Tim Beckley with his stuff. Uh, he uh, uh, they went and uh, disallowed and and basically di- uh, kicked him out because they said that he was uh, uh, clicking right. on this stuff himself. Yeah. So, and, and, and yeah, and he was just like, uh, I'm pretty sure I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I figured that from the beginning, even with the Google ads, you know, I, I knew people were clicking on it because I'd say, are you ever clicking on those ads? They said, yeah, sometimes. And I said, well, y'all just, whenever you go to my site, click on those ads. Nothing, you know, and that's not me clicking on them. You know, that's somebody else. And of course, it just proves to me that, that with, with Google slash YouTube, I, I guess you have to be in the millions of hits range before they'll, Think about paying you something, or pay attention to you. Right? Yeah. yeah. You're just not putting up enough cute cat videos, Mike. Yeah, well, my, my, I guess my point is, don't depend on Google Ads and YouTube for your income. Or <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> book publishing, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
you're lucky if you make a check every now and then to pay some bills or pay some put some gas in the car. <laughs> yeah. Unless you are somebody that has the ear of one of the super major publishers, but they're not as powerful as they used to be because all the other publishing outfits have that have come up, the print on demand people have really put a dent in the market. And I'm glad, honestly. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. I I recently was going through some old boxes of stuff, and I found letters from publishers from the late '80s when I had written. Uh, I have a couple of novels out. You know, that I call the Pulsifer Saga, Pulsifer a Fable, and Land of Ice, a Velvet Knife. And these two novels were actually written in the late 80s. And I can always prove that because I've got the letters from publishers that I sent it to. And they said, no thanks. Or they said, send it and let us look at it. And there was a really major New York publisher of science fiction, one of the biggest of all of them, especially during that time. And they wanted to see the first novel, and I sent it to them, I think, in 88. And then in 89, they said, oh, my, or, or maybe late in 88, they said, oh, early 89 or something, they said, oh, man, this is great. Send us the second one. Actually, I think it was in 87 and 88. But anyway, I sent them the second novel. I said, you know, as soon as I finished writing it, I sent it to them. So they basically had these two novels for 18 months. And they were sending me letters. Well, your letter, you know, your your first novel has passed the first review and it's being sent to the, you know, the, the, uh, editor uh the next whatever the next editor is and then ultimately it's going to go to the executive editor the per actually she was the daughter of the guy who founded the company um so they're passing these things up the chain up the food chain and one i think it was christmas of 89 i get a package and i get a letter at the same time about around christmas time the letter is for is a letter from them returning my manuscripts. The package is the manuscripts. I open up the manuscript, the manuscripts, and I find a handwritten note by the, one of the main editors, the second in command, at the, at the at the publishing house, and it's a handwritten note where she was passing it upstairs. And I've still got it, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. And the note basically says. This is a great book. Lots of fun. Lots of action. Uh, very reminiscent of such and such in some ways. Uh, anti-hero, but not very nasty. Not as nasty as so-and-so. You know, pretty good read. Pretty fun read. Blah, blah, blah. So I open up my rejection letter, because that's what it was. And it says, we think your character is too mean and nasty. <laughs> <laughs> But, I, but, you know, I've got this official letter that says he's too mean and nasty. And then I've got this letter from the, the editor, uh, the, the managing editor saying, not that, you know, he's not that nasty. He's an anti-hero, but he's not that mean, you know. So, I mean, which is it? And see, it just goes to show what a racket, you know, that this is. And at the time, I was friends with a, a very well-known uh, science fiction writer, a guy named Jerry Page, Gerald W. Page. And I was talking to him on the phone and. He said, well, he said, listen, he said, he said, if you're going to resubmit those books, he said, don't change one thing. He, cause he had read them, you know, and he, he read the manuscript. He said, he said, don't change anything. He said, you just, you know, and I said, I'm not changing anything. And he said, what they do, and this was back in these days, he says, what they do is they will have, they have a pool of money. Listen, I'm talking about corporate publishers. They have a pool of money that they're, that they're allowed to draw from and, and, and each year in their budget. And they can either pay 
two or three huge name authors like Stephen King or or, or uh, Ramsey Campbell or somebody like that, they can pay them a huge amount of money and get a book, one book. And if that doesn't come through, say if they lose in a bidding war, because there were a lot of bidding wars with agents and stuff back then, I don't know if there still are or not, but they said if, if they lose in the bidding war or they don't get who they're coming trying to get, then they will take that same amount of money that they were going to give to one big name and they'll bring in like eight new writers or ten new writers and spread that money out as advances. See? So he said, so what happened was, he said, you watch. He said, they kept the books for 18 months for a reason. He said they were waiting to see if they were going to get contract from somebody who was a big name. And sure enough, that like like six months later, they had like two really big name major writers, you know, with new books come out in their line. So that's you know that's the way it used to work, and it doesn't necessarily work that way anymore because now we have options as writers. You know, we don't we're not dependent on this mercurial industry anymore. No, we have the internet. Yes, we have a distribution means that is unsurpassed for any kind of media. Uh, not not quite as good for you know concrete objects, but right. that's coming along too. If Amazon ever gets their drones, mm. you know, just click <laughs> and there it is. It's almost yeah. like putting me out a new doodad. Yeah, and well, you know. The, the whole publishing business has changed, too. I mean, like Wayne at Ancient American, he started the magazine back in the 80s when he felt desktop publishing was ready. It wasn't about, you know, was the market ready? He had already determined that. He was waiting for the software to be ready so that he could sit at his desk at home and compile this magazine. And he doesn't, these days, get a whole lot of time at home because he's out on the road looking at new sites all the time. Right. New to him, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started to say, back in the, uh, uh, back at that time, you had basically what, what, what would it be? Quark? Desktop yeah. publishing? Yep. Yeah. And Adam. Yeah. Adam was the. Adam. Other. Oh my gosh, I'd forgotten about that one. Yep, exactly. Well, look, guys, I mean, I, I was using, I don't know how back your, how far back your computer usage goes. I'm sure it goes back as, probably for, at least as far as mine does. I started on a Tandy doing word processing. <laughs> writing novels on a Tandy. Uh, tra- trash 80. Yeah. Look, guys, I, I wrote these things by hand, longhand, you know, on, on tablets, you know, uh, legal pads. Mm-hmm. And then would sit in front of a Tandy computer with big floppy disks mm-hmm. and key this stuff in. And mm-hmm. that's how I did the first drafts of these novels. Yeah. I, I still have my notebooks, too. You know, and, and, you know, what I wish I had, what I, talking about, you know, when we first started on this journey, what I wish I had is that fourth or fifth grade short story, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's because true. That, that's when it, that bug bit me, I guess, particularly yeah. for the fiction side of it. The nonfiction okay. stuff comes more naturally to me, I guess, because... Yeah. Um, it's a whole lot like being a technician between an engineer and someone who doesn't understand anything because, well, the engineers and the scientists, they don't know how to talk to real people. Right. <laughs> Technicians can grasp what they're trying to say and then translate a little bit. Right. Some things are not fully translatable. That 
that's a good way to put it. I never thought about it that way. I mean, uh, how do do you translate a white hole? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to do it in layman's terms, and they don't speak, um, you know, quantum mechanics. (laughs) So, (laughs) So you have to be able to get some meaningful... Uh, translation out of it in order to put it in terms that your average high school graduate or maybe not can understand it. That's right. Ninth grade reading level is, or was at least when I worked for the government, that all the tech manuals had to be at ninth grade reading level. That's ninth grade high school, freshman high school reading level. Because, wow. Yeah. So that the only thing required to actually perform the tasks was the ability to read English and have opposing thumbs, preferably two. <laughs> yeah, make, it makes you wonder though if it's still at ninth grade or if it's gone down from that from that I, time. I'm pretty sure it has gone down. Oh, that's sad. Well, yeah, well, I, I also look. We talked about this before. I also blame this whole digital explosion for that too. The whole digital culture is actually dumbed down people more than it's helped most people because they're used to doing text messaging um you know that there's punctuation grammar capitalization all these things are just going out the window and so you'll actually see websites people have written articles and and the people i mean their articles that are being published on legitimate big websites are so badly written that they would fail you know english comp sixth grade Hmm. but you can find the same thing in a newspaper yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. Sad to say, the bigger papers are worse about it than the little local papers, in my opinion. Yeah, it's gotten pretty bad. You've got people contributing to a story, let's say, out of the L.A. Times or the New York Post, whatever. Pick a, pick a big paper. But the contributors, four or five different contributors, are not only all over the continent, they're all over the world, mm. meaning... Probably with at least one of them, English is a second language. Right. And, and they, their usage is bizarre in some cases. But that, that's kind of how we got into this whole mess of, you know, we've got ancient writings, 5,000 years old, that people claim to be able to translate, read. Um, uh, you know, the, the Assyrian tablets as one of many examples. Right. Um, but yet, we had this document in this country that's, what, 240 years old, give or take, uh, that we keep arguing about the meaning of the words in it. It's called the Constitution. <laughs> right. <laughs> in that short span of time, the usage of those words has changed enough that the meaning is different. For yeah, instance, some, I'll give you sometimes. a primary example. The pursuit of happiness. Well, what does that mean? Well, today it means I'm going to be happy and you can't do anything about it. It's my constitutional right to be happy. Well, yeah, but that's not what it meant then. And that's not what it says. It says you can pursue it. You can try to be happy. No, that's not what it meant at all. What it meant was the pursuit, the occupation, the job, the line of work that you wanted to do, nobody was going to tell you you couldn't do it. There you go. But again, that's the same thing. That's like... I can pursue this, this, like you said, this pastime, this occupation, this way of life. But, you know, that's not a guarantee 
that you can uh, we were talking about before you we brought you on about some bad people doing some really bad things that you could do things to hurt other people or interfere with other people's rights because you're pursuing your own happiness or whatever yeah fulfillment right. or whatever yeah um we, first we definitely rights come to mind but yeah <laughs> yeah up until now they're still protected by the second amendment right mm-hmm. fourth amendment is trouble though i think mm-hmm. yeah fourth amendment's in big trouble i don't know man we I, I, guys I, i'll be honest with you i i i've got some friends in uh, in europe uh, all over all over the continent and they're not real happy because of all the mass immigration that's going on unchecked where people are just pouring across their borders from North Africa to the Middle East and they're bringing terrorism, violence, um, intolerance with them. They're overwhelming all the, all the systems that are in place to help people, take care of people, uh, keep the society stable. Yeah, they're, they're, not they're, just, they're, they're not just impacting it. They're destroying it. They're destroying it. And, and when the people who are concerned speak up, they're told that they're racist, they're intolerant, and they're, and they're basically saying, we cannot support this. We can't continue to exist as a nation. We can't continue to exist as a culture. This is absolutely destroying who we are and have been. And they're being told, well, you know, that's that's racism, that's intolerant. Well, first of all, that has nothing to do with race. These are religious and cultural differences, you know. Um, and it, I have to wonder if, if this whole... Uh, thing that Trump has tied into and look I'm not a big Donald Trump supporter but I think that he's hit a nerve which is a similar concern because it's not just Mexican people coming across the border illegally it's people from every part of the planet who are coming across that southern border illegally and this is a threat to the stability of a nation you can't be a nation without a secure border and I I look at all these these, uh, um, politically correct ways of looking at things which are basically uh, capitulation is what it is, you know, to my mind. Uh, you know, commit, capitulation to demands of those who claim they are aggrieved. And I, I see coming the destruction of our civil and secular society. Because our civil and secular society, while it is that, if you go back and read the Declaration of Independence, it says we are endowed, meaning from birth, by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And then from there they go on to write the Constitution. And all of that, that's all the, that's the underpinnings of the secular society of tolerance and, and freedom and all the rest of it, natural rights of man, which of course goes back to the Magna Carta. Um, all this stuff is being done away with because there are no natural rights of man, say, for instance, under Sharia law. Right. So we, we're, I think we're in for some very uh, interesting times ahead. In the next few decades, yeah, uh, that's so nicely understated. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel privileged to live where I live. Tim, you haven't been out to the house, but you know about where it is, right? Um, I have prepped about all I can prep, except for getting off the grid, which is my next step. Wow, there's a song title in there someplace. <laughs> it's writing itself. And, uh, you know, I got a couple of draft animals and some, well, allegedly laying hens that turned out to be useless eaters. But uh, that can be fixed and uh, a nice pond for 
fish-based protein. Um, it's coming. I don't know when it's going to come, and I don't know that it will come from artificial forces. Um, it could come from a major coronal mass ejection from the sun. You know, anything could happen, and then we That's won't right. be having this conversation anymore in our lifetimes. That's right. right. Because the grid will not recover in 40 or 50 years. No. In fact, if this happens, if we have, for instance, a, a, a really devastating coronal mass ejection or a super volcano eruption of significant size, any number of things that could happen. Or an impact. That, 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 yeah, or an impact. Mm-hmm. That, that's it. I mean, we're back to the dark ages. And so what happens? We're back to yeah. the dark ages at best. At best. That's right. <laughs> so what happens to that segment of the population? And I'm saying I want to have to phrase this carefully. The segment of the population that does not know how to hunt, grow food, um, any number of things that you have to do to survive, how to find water. What happens to those who are all their lives dependent on grocery stores and or the government to feed them? What happens to those people? I, I, I submit to you that at first you're going to see roving bands. You're going to see food wars, wars over resources, like not not, not nationwide, but door-to-door, street-to-street, okay? Yeah. Um, and then, after that, there's going to be some dust settling. And uh, people who are going to be left are the people who are able to, A, defend themselves and what they have, and B, know how to do something to survive. Have value to society is what you're saying. Yes. I believe that's what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Well, you know, though, in a situation like that, uh, even if you do have the ability to hunt, any four-legged walking animal is going to be, uh, the population is going to be decimated within a, within a couple of months. So even if Absolutely. you do know how to hunt, I mean, you know, don't depend on that because, I mean, right. every deer, every dog, every cat, anything, yeah. you know, yeah. is, well, is going to be shot and eaten. That's, well, I'll give you an example. In, in During the Great Depression... Um, the the population of things like rabbits, squirrels, possums, everything, coons, raccoons, everything, like you said, decimated because everybody hit the woods to get something to eat. And then other animals also were decimated. And then you had to worry about if you had, for instance, land, you're not going to be able to keep people off that land. You may think I've got some squirrels back there on that back 10 acres or whatever. And you're going to go back there and find it. Oh no, somebody's been there and they've gotten all those squirrels. You know, you basically have to police your property. You have, you'd have to, you know, and, and when you look at what's going on, uh, with the water situation, you'll see that, for instance, if it's not Nestle Corporation draining even one of our great lakes through an agreement with the Obama administration, because it is, it's been draining the California aquifer. Nestle, okay, here is California. It's in a drought situation. And a Nestle's going there. Year drought. Yeah. And then now they're saying that this is a, a thousand year drought, which means every thousand years, North America is hit by a devastating drought that lasts for decades. And they think we're starting to see the beginnings of it now. And it's something that's cyclical. It happens over and over again. Then you have the government, the federal government, Obama's administration basically saying, we own all the water. We yeah. have pre- EPA. We have we have new rules. The water in the ditch behind your house, the water in your gutters, the water in your rain barrel, the water anywhere on your property that fell from the sky or runs under the ground belongs to the federal government. 
They're doing this because two reasons. First of all, there's going to be a water shortage in the future, near future. Second of all, they're going to have to relocate people because of this, and they think it's going to strain resources. But thirdly, if there's any one thing you can use to control the population, it's water. Nobody can live without water. All I can say is get smart. Get smart now. Figure it out. See it coming. Because there are people out there, when the time comes, you know, if you have water and it's not owned by the government or controlled by the government, there are people out there who will kill you for your water. They would be more willing to do that if they were super thirsty. Yes. Exactly. The other end of that stick is, if I'm the one with the water, I'm already stronger and healthier. Well, it's also, and it I, also depends and, on and it I depends can guarantee on you. I can guarantee you I'm a better shot. Oh, yeah. That's what I was going to say. It depends on <laughs> how, how skilled you are at protecting the water. And and one other factor, numbers. Yeah, because, numbers can play a big part. Yeah, a big part. Preparation so, can play the other part. So make sure you have a group of people that you can call upon quickly or that may even be with you that you can depend upon when it all goes bad. Because sooner or later it will. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, it may not be a man-made disaster. It could be a That's complete right. natural disaster in many different forms. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't take, it wouldn't take a lot, actually, no, to, uh, to uh, damage the infrastructure. Well, no, you, de- you don't even have to damage the concrete. You just have mm-hmm. to take away the communications network. And the world, as we know it, falls apart. It doesn't harm the planet in any way, shape, or form, or the wildlife yeah. on it, other than you know, there's going to be a lot of hungry hunters. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and like Mike said, that happened once within the last hundred years already. Actually, it happened twice. Um, in the 70s, there was another big surge of hunting. There was also a shortage of gasoline. Yep, that's right. So those two and those three things actually go hand in hand because if you can't call Saudi Arabia and say, "Hey, I need another million barrels," um, and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is sitting on well, ten billion barrels of oil that they can't sell or ship, and it's already out of the ground. Expect a big fire there, yeah. and it will truly yeah. be the dark ages. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, think about this too. And this this is not to sound like you know somebody that's writing a scenario for uh, uh, post apocalyptic thing because it's all been written by now, pretty much. But in societies that that crumble and that suffers extreme uh, hardship, uh, famine, and things of this nature, historically, even going back through the Crusades and and uh, um, the jihads and uh, the, the the Mongol invasions and all the rest of it. When famine hits an area, cannibalism becomes a part of life. Anywhere. Pretty much. And people don't want to think about that, and they don't want to admit it, and they don't want to talk about it. But there are people out there. It's easier for some of these people in in our world, and always has been, it's easier for some people to kill another human being, which, after all, a human being is easy prey, than it is for them to go stalk and kill a wild animal to sustain themselves. 
Yeah. And, uh, and, you, and the bizarre part is all those waterways that are owned and controlled by the United States government, if any of these events happens, all those waterways become feedways for those who know how to use them. Right down to the ditch. I mean, Tim, you've eaten crawdads. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. Mud bugs, mud bugs abound in all these ditches and stuff. That's that's right. That's right. But you better know Jasper, Indiana, Tim. Jasper, Indiana, (laughs) in the in the River Walk, (laughs) above the old mill. Mm -hmm. You know, guys, you need to know how to prepare them, or you're going to have a mouthful of dirt. (laughs) Yeah, the the cleanest I ever ate, incidentally, were in Norway, but they came from California, which was bizarre. I used to catch it when I was a teenager. I found I found a rake, uh, what's called a crawfish rake. Yeah. It's basically kind of like a net. And I went and, ca- and caught some. And the first time, you know, I didn't know what I was doing because I had eaten them, but I had never prepared them. I was just going to do it myself. <laughs> and and I, I cooked them, and, boy, they were just gritty, full of sand and grit. And I was like, oh, these are no good. So I went and got some more, and I had talked to a few people. So this time, I guess I was about 16, I took them and soaked them in a wheelbarrow full of salty water. And sure enough, they purged, which basically means they poop and they, and they puke, 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 all the stuff they've digested, <clears throat> which is basically dirt, okay? And then you basically rinse them off, and they're still alive, and you put fresh water on them and wash all the grit away, and then you boil them alive, because that's how you have to cook them. Sorry, PETA. Anyway, you boil, you boil them, and then they taste fine, but you have yeah. to... You have to purge them first, or you—they're almost, almost uh, unpalatable. <laughs> yes, that's right. Same thing with lobster too. I might add, right? Um, and I've had some really bad lobster. I've had some good lobster too. <laughs> well, hey, well, I tell you something though. Once those crawdads are purged, they're pretty good. Yeah, they are. I, I love them. Yeah. Yeah, this is a real southern thing too. You guys know that. Yes. That, oh yeah. Yep. Really, because southern Indiana's got its share of them. I'll tell you. In <laughs> fact, in fact, there is a farm in north central Indiana that raises them. That's cool. Yeah, it is. Oh, I, oh, I didn't know that. Really. Yep. And see, that's the thing people don't realize. Just about any insect is edible. You can fry any of them. You know. You can. But, yeah. Um, but people don't want to because it's the idea of eating them that, that grosses people out. If you're starving, you'll eat them. Yeah, so. they're crunchy and they're fried. But anyway, um, we kind of diverged there. Like, before like we used fried, to do. But. Uh, we kind of went off on a slight side tangent there. Yeah, but um, it has it still has everything to do with survival and bringing up bugs is a great segue. Yeah, the, it is. The, the United States Army Ranger Manual, uh, survival manual, lists good protein sources to include maggots. Right. Because it is. It's a great protein source. Now, I don't think that those two gals who went through ranger school got quite that far with the survival um, school yet. Probably not, no. <laughs> Probably, Probably not. <laughs> did, did you guys watch this show uh, called Alone that was on the History Channel? I did not. Okay, this old guy that won, I call him old guy, this old boy because he's a southerner. He's from Georgia. Um, I knew he was going to win. You could just tell he'd been in the woods. He, he knew what he was doing. He was very calm. That was the main thing. He stayed calm the whole time. Kind of had a, uh, 
a good attitude about everything and just kind of roll with it day by day. And other guys kind of freak out, you know, over time. But this old boy, what he did was the last day that he did not know he had won, and he got up and he went looking for breakfast, and he was very hungry. And it was a certain time of year. I'm not sure what the situation was, but he's basically on a Vancouver island, a very you know, in a very remote area. He went out, and he started finding these big, giant slugs. Hmm. And he was excited to find these slugs. His mm-hmm. slugs are mollusks. Okay, you can't eat them raw. It will make you sick. It could even kill you. Mm-hmm. But he collected these 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 slugs, took them back to his camp, and fried them up in his frying pan. And he ate them, and he said they tasted great. Now, how many people would do that? How many people, would, if they were starving, would think to gather up slugs and fry them and eat them? Well, they're going to have to start thinking differently. <laughs> he woke up hungry, so... Yeah, that's right. Makes a difference. It's it's kind of like the irony is that you know, maybe forty minutes later after he'd eaten slugs for breakfast, the guys show up and say, "Hey, guess what? You won. It's over." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like that. I don't know if you've seen Castaway. I had not seen it until just a few months ago, but um, after he's rescued or actually finds his way back to civilization, um. He's in the main meeting room of uh, FedEx, because that's where he worked, and somebody left a cigarette lighter on the table. And all he can do is sit there and flick that pick, because he's thinking back on how many nights he froze his ass off without a fire. Mm. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And you better know how to make fire, and you better know how to make it from scratch. You know what I mean? Old-fashioned ways of making fire. Guys, I'm telling you, like Rick said, it could happen anytime. And when the grid goes down, it's the old and the infirm and people who require uh, uh, medications that have to be uh, refrigerated and all this sort of stuff. Unfortunately, they're the people that are probably going to go first. Um, you know, and then you're going to have uh, People who can't take care of themselves, who can't find food and can't protect themselves in, in, in their situation, they'll go next. And, uh, of course, a lot of people would probably die um, simply in conflicts with each other. So you look at what goes on. You look, look at Baltimore and look at Ferguson and extrapolate that out to pretty much everywhere else because that's what it's going to be like, but much but worse. You know, I know people who were on the ground in, uh, in New Orleans during Katrina. And the media has the media plays up New Orleans. Uh, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi was wiped out. New Orleans yeah. got a rain; they got a rainstorm and a flood, and it's just fell and it still fell apart. But it was due to the I'm going to say it the demographics there. They basic I know guys who were there as uh, people who've been in Mogadishu, who've been in Iraq, and they said that New Orleans was worse than Mogadishu. Okay. The drug lords and the drug gangs and the gangs attempted to rule the city. They assassinated a police chief. They fired on rescue helicopters. I mean, they had to send in uh, the 82nd Airborne and a bunch of different mercenary groups, uh, excuse me, special operators, to clean that damn city and take out the trash. They had to take out the trash, okay? And they disarmed people, too. Yeah, they disarmed everybody, not just... They tried to. They tried to, yeah. Yeah. And I know that 
you know, people don't realize what really went on. They hear about how bad the Superdome was. But what they don't know is there's a convention center. And I've been to the convention center before. I went to SIGGRAPH there and other places, other, other events in the past. And the convention center literally descended into the most barbaric circumstances. Um, a seven-year-old boy was raped and murdered right in front of everybody. Um, uh, there were rumors of cannibalism. Um, this kind of crap right off the bat almost where – you know, there's a certain segment of, of, of people who, when put into those type of circumstances, they will start preying on other people. That's what they will do. And so, like I said, extrapolate that out because if you have a big, big disaster, you can expect those type of people to be roaming about looking for trouble. Yep, and they'll find it. Yeah, they'll find it all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Easy to find trouble. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and it's not, that's just a few examples. If you go back to 68 and watch, you had just as predatory behavior. Um, yeah. You, of course, you have uh, the other end, you have other examples. Waco. Right. Exactly. Uh, Ridge. Um, you have a lot of people gathered up to, um, to take down innocent bystanders. That's right. And that is exactly what happened to some extent in Waco. Now, Ruby Ridge was 100% innocent bystanders. Um, yeah. But still, there was no excuse for any of it. It was all criminal activity on the part of the federal government. When you look at... Um, and nobody did any time. When you look at... Yeah, exactly. When you look at the... No, in fact, one of the guys involved in both those events became Attorney General. Yeah. Um, when, yeah. When you look at... Uh, um, what happened with the Bundy Ranch? Okay, it was gonna, it was, it was lining up to be a similar event, and enough yes. people, and enough media, and enough internet exposure, and seriously pissed off citizens showed up by the hundreds. At that time, yeah, put it into it at that time while filming everything. Yeah, um, what gets me is is the photograph where they had where the the the. Uh, Bureau of Land Management set up a, a little area with tape, and they put up a sign, and it said, free speech area. And somebody else put hung up a handwritten sign that said, free speech is not an area. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Th- this is what we have to do. And um, I uncovered something, which I actually had put on my blog, about what this was probably really about. That whole region has been bought up by a company that belongs to Harry Reid's family his sons and other investors and uh, his pals. And the only piece of land they don't own is the Bundy Ranch. The, they claim that they want to put in, they want to lease it to a Chinese company for solar farms, but that's not what that Chinese company does. What that Chinese company does is they mine thorium. That's what area is super rich in thorium. Yeah, it sure because is. Of, yeah, because a thorium reactor is the only nuclear reactor that has no waste product left and the Chinese are on a fast track to building thorium reactors and they are in dire search of as much thorium as they can get um, for to, for electricity for their country and so what they want to do is they want to strip mine the whole Nevada desert and parts of Utah and get all the thorium out and I did a little digging and it didn't take long it's in my blog post there on my at monomorphic.com slash blog where that uh, Harry Reid and who's a Democrat and um, Orrin Hatch 
who's a Republican, got together, right there together, you know, states touching each other, and they got together and had passed this bill to develop thorium as an energy resource and all this kind of stuff, getting into partnerships with others that were doing it and stuff. And then all of a sudden, this company that's owned by Reed Sons starts buying up all the land in that part of Nevada. Now, you can't tell me that Hatch and Reed are somehow involved in all that. Yeah. Yeah. And see, they're used to doing this to people. Yeah. They're used to doing this to people and getting away with it. Now, I've heard that, that there were other rumblings that they, that the, the BLM was going to come back and try again. I don't know if they have or not, but uh, um, they really, really were just running roughshod over citizens. That's what they were doing. Yeah. Using mercenaries, by the way. A lot of those people they had with them were contractors, meaning they were basically, you know, mercenaries. They hired. Yeah, they were mercenaries. They weren't even BLM people. Which is perfectly so, legal, I guess. I guess. It is, but then again, so is standing up for your rights. Yes, it is. That so. part doesn't count to the bureaucrats, though. No. Hey, gentlemen, why don't we uh, why don't we take our break now, and uh, we'll continue this conversation uh, when we come back, uh, and uh, maybe ask uh, um, Rick a little bit more about. Uh, some of his activities with uh, Ancient America and uh, 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 stuff like that. That sound good? Works for me. Sounds good. All right, all right. Let's uh, let's go ahead and do that then. You're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Schwartz with Mike Mott. Our guest today is Rick Osman. We will be right back, so please stay tuned. <laughs> I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. 
Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. So, Jacqueline. Yes, Mom? I wanted to talk to you about something and... Oh, wait. Hold on. I just got a text. Oh, there's another one. Wow. Busy, busy me. So, anyway... Oh, wait, Mom. I just got a message. My friends keep commenting on my comment. Oh, there's another one. So many comments on my comment. Oh, I can't wait to watch TV tonight. Playoffs! Hey, guys, check out my new video game. Wait, wait. Mom, what? What? What'd you say? Wait a second, what? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. and Radio Network. Today we're talking with Rick Osmond, and of course I'm Tim Swartz with uh, William Michael Mott. So uh, Rick, I wanted to ask you, uh, about this time last year, you were uh, putting on a, uh, a, a conference there in Washington, yep. Indiana, ancient, uh, ancient America uh, conference? Yes, it uh, was actually November the 1st and 2nd, and we held it at the Washington Eastside Park, they call it. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful venue. Too bad you didn't come. You know, I actually paid for tickets to go, I, I but know then you did. Yeah, but then, uh, but then realized that I had a uh, a conflicting event that that very same weekend that uh, was uh, um, very near and dear 
to our heart involving a uh, a 5k run for uh, uh families for international adoptions or forever ah. families and uh since you know i mean since since you know i mean our daughter Lorelai, we adopted her from from india mm-hmm. nine nine years ago now wow so, yeah i know i know so um, <laughs> so that's uh, but uh, you know i wanted to, i wanted to ask you i mean how uh, how that how that event went well it wasn't too bad i mean we had some great speakers Turnout was a little lower than I'd hoped for, but it was enough to, you know, keep the interest up, I guess. We're not going to have one this year. We may have one next year. Um, may use a different venue though. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a great conference as far as, you know, knowledge being passed back and forth. We had, I went, did a walking tour of the parking lot and there were 16 states represented there. So I felt pretty good about that. Oh yeah, well, and you did. I mean, you had some excellent speakers. Yeah, I thought so. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we, you know, we uh, we got some of the regulars and some of the newcomers. I guess is the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, Vince Barrow has been around a long time, but he hasn't spoken much. He should because he's got a wealth of information. Frank Joseph speaks a lot and. Uh, never does the same one twice. So you never know what you're going to get with Frank, but it was pretty good. Uh, Wayne May was there. Lee Pennington, you know, near the top of my list as far as not only researchers and presenters, but also as human beings. Um, long list. Um, I can't even pull them all together. John White. Um, I mentioned Frank. We had... Um, a guy from Southern Illinois talking about all the fortresses over there, uh, and it's a—it's uh, not completely new to me, but I've never actually set foot in any of them. I've read a lot about them. Mike's gonna take me around, I think, one of these days. But there are at least a dozen across Southern Illinois. Unlike the ones in Indiana, they're not all along a major riverway. There's oh, really? Yeah, there's water. You know, like for sustenance, but there's not water for carriage or uh, right. transportation. Now, you know, we used to talk about this years ago on, on on the show that we were doing a show together. Are you still thinking that a lot of these are ancestral Europeans and Phoenicians and things of that type that were eventually assimilated into the tribes? Or what's your I- general feeling about this? I don't know what to think about that. I, I am absolutely confident that there was trade and communication going both ways across both oceans. Right. Um, there's enough archaeological evidence that is uh, decidedly ignored by the academic community that says we should be looking at why there's all these Chinese influences in Native American art. We should be looking at why there's Ogom and Celtic Ogom and... Uh, Iberian scripts, a half a dozen of them, that show up in the tablets in the mounds, or came out of the mounds, I should say. Um, we should be looking at all this evidence. We have DNA evidence. We have carbon-14. We have metallurgy stuff. Right. The paradigm has to change. And uh, Scott Walter is making a stab at it with his presence on History Channel, or H2. Right. Um, and you have some similar stuff going on with BBC now and PBS, which I find fascinating and 
encouraging, I guess is the right word, although they don't get a lot of academics participating. <laughs> um, but they get a lot of viewers. So, Well, you know, there still are those who are more concerned about being politically correct and not offending certain groups than they are about finding the truth. Right, I understand that. And, um, and I do have a lot of respect for the Native Americans. I do believe that they invented a lot of these things and exported them overseas. So there you go. Yeah. You, you had all of these facilities, true infrastructure, that lined a lot of the rivers, particularly east of the Rockies, um, that was made for sending a signal across a continent. You had, at the same time, incidentally, contemporaneously, in Europe, particularly Western Europe, you had the same basic setup owned and controlled by the Roman Empire. Right. Explain to the listeners, if you would, exactly how this communication system worked. Exactly? I don't know all of it. Well, 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 what's, what's your idea about it? They picked the topography so that they would not have to build as high a mound as they would if they didn't have a hill. So they get on a hill. They might build a mound on top of a hill. They might have built a tower on top of a hill. Right. And then they reflected sunlight using probably pieces of sheet mica. Right. Could have been polished metal, but we haven't found much of that. Uh, and they had some kind of a line of sight code used much like we would use Morse code today. Right. That could send a message over great distances. And well, you know, today, in, in, in the Middle Ages, the Europeans did something very similar to that. Yeah, they, they would do signal fires from a high spot. If something were, you know, they had the watchmen watching it from the high spots, and if they saw the signal fire, they knew that something was up, something was coming. And if they couldn't get to the high spot, they would send something called a war arrow, and they would have a, a best archer in each region who would send out these special arrows toward the next watch point. And when they would see these arrows come in, you know, you get hit by one. I guess that's just you know uh, occupational hazard. But then the, that person would take that arrow or another one like it and send it on to the next point. Um, it's amazing the things that people will do. Yeah, and and they were still way behind the times of what was going on here as far as yeah. the the content and the uh, elasticity, if you will, and effectiveness of the communications grid because that's what it was. It wasn't just a single line. It was a grid that could pass information over at least two-thirds of North America and do it in pretty short order, we think. Now, we actually have some written records of the Romans' use of this, and we have an example, for instance, of when Claudius, quote-unquote, invaded Britain. He arrived and didn't get killed, so therefore it was an invasion. Uh, he didn't get killed right away. And when he arrived, he realized he was under-equipped for this. He needed a whole other legion of troops, 5,500 combat troops and their entire retinue, which would probably end up being about 10,000 people. So he sent that message to Rome. He's the emperor, but he's still, you know, effectively got to get Senate okay for dispatching that many people. Well, the message arrived in Rome the same day it was sent from Britain. So... <laughs> um, they had a very fast communications grid of some kind. That is fast. Yeah. And it wasn't by runner. Yep. <laughs> you go, back e <laughs> go back even further. You had the lighthouse at Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And you right. have 
all the you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And for ships a hundred miles out to sea could see the light. Well, today they still use or still have available for use signal lights that will send a signal to a ship at sea. Today we get maybe 25 miles. But back then that tower, that lighthouse was about the same height as the Gateway Arch at St. Louis. Wow. <laughs> Which you can see for 25 miles without mm. any lights on it. Mm-hmm. Right. But over the flat Mediterranean, you could see 100 miles. Now, there are a number of islands out in the med that could, did, not just could, they did, had their own lighthouses. It was a relay system. Right. Not just to guide ships off of the coast, uh, don't run into me, I'm a lighthouse. No, it, it was... It was much more than that, and it was much more effective at that time than it was even in medieval Europe, because they'd lost the skills, they'd lost the concepts, even. Right. Everything, anything that they had, had been scaled down tremendously too. Yeah. But but I'm working on a hypothesis. I don't don't really know how to test it at this point. I'm still working that part up to see if Ogum. Not just Celtic Ogum, but Punic Ogum. There are, you know, half a dozen different variations of this alphabet could be adapted for reflected sunlight so that you got the up and down strokes or back and forth strokes, no matter which way, just as long as you have a convention of orientation to actually use reflected sunlight with a single mirror and send alphabetic messages. Hmm. I know you could do it with Morse code. I'm trying to figure out if you can do it with Ogum as, you know, just raw alphabet. Hmm. Right. Very interesting. That is. That is. That's, uh, that's, that's a fascinating concept. Well, it's not a done deal yet, but it's it's a hypothesis. Yeah. Well, so, Rick, so, I, I want... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So to continue down this communications thing get yeah. and get back to the whole... Um, uh, prepping thing. We have all these cell towers out here that, well, once an EMP hits, uh, they'll be useless. They, they're not even particularly good scrap metal. But right. they would be nice high towers with a line of sight that can go 35 miles. Yeah, they're 300 miles, uh, 300 feet, 300 feet tall. Most of them. Yeah. So yeah, uh, and, and incidentally, uh, when you find a cell tower, there was probably another tower there before because the terrain has not changed that much. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, recently they had a weird outage. Up, it started around uh, Louisville, Kentucky, in that area, and it kept spreading, spreading. It jumped from one, uh, I think it jumped, started with Verizon, it jumped to AT&T. Uh, their towers were going down and all this kind of thing, and it was like a big outage for a whole day. And I know a guy, that's all I'll say, who actually works in those cell phone towers. He climbs up and... and Repairs them and and all this kind of and upgrades. They actually have software in the towers, and he goes up there and upgrades the software and the hardware and everything. And when these things started going, it was a cascade. You know, they were going down. They talk about prepping. Um, everybody's cell phones stopped working. People were freaking out for like four, three across three or four different states, and it even reached down as far as North Alabama, I believe, and North Georgia, some places, or or ten, definitely through Tennessee. Um, and here's the question. Was that really 
just some freak thing, or was that a test to see how people would respond if and when the, the communications go down? You know, what watch watch Facebook, watch uh, 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 landlines, watch. Uh, informational traffic and see what happens, how people react when they can no longer communicate with their cell phones. You know, the guy said that, that I talked to said that all he was told was that it was a software error and it cascaded across the systems and jumped from one system to another and that they were going to have to climb all these towers and upgrade the software on every single one. But within, you know, 10 hours, everything was up and running again and that wasn't enough time to climb all those towers and upgrade all the software. So, you know, some of the same old stuff. It's just our modern take on it, but uh, very interesting. Yeah, somebody, I'd say it was hacked. I'd say it was part of Jade Helm because Jade Helm is designed, if you go look at what it really is, it's, it, Jade 2 is a, uh, it's, a, it's an AI, and it's designed to simulate all types of battlefield conditions, including invasion, um, grids going down, all the rest of it, and the movements and reactions of people. For instance, if I'm mentioning Jade Helm right now, uh, uh, alarms are going off. If I type in something oh, yeah. like Jade Helm on Facebook, Jade Helm itself gets alerted and goes and looks and sees what I'm saying. So people don't realize this, okay? That's what it's really all about. It's about putting warfare in the hands of a computer system, totally, if, if necessary. Say all your people get killed and you still need a computer running things, which is a very scary thought, or if it <laughs> just decides to take over. But I wonder, I'm, I'm wondering if this wasn't part of the Jade Helm exercise, even though it wasn't in the designated area, see, which, would you, which actually would fit right in with the whole scenario. How would the system react to something on the periphery of the uh, exercise area? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe maybe they were hacked by the Chinese. Who knows? You know. We'll blame it on the Algerians. But <laughs> it was blame it on the video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> blame it on the Deeros, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Worked uh, in the past, it could work now. It could work now. But uh, let me see. One other thing that I'm still working on, Mike, as as yep. you know, I was working on a book about hollow earth physics. Right. That That's another one where it's increasingly difficult for me to translate the terms that the scientists use and understand into right. terms that the layman can use and understand. And when I say use, I mean that, put it to utilization. Because uh, I think there's something there that is generating, roughly, four terawatts of energy uh, all the time at the center of the Earth. Four terawatts of energy. Because the Earth produces that much more heat than it gets from the sun. Right. And they'll try to tell you, oh, no, that's just, that's just the remnant Radi- heat. Radioactivity, yeah. And remnant heat from the formation of the Earth four billion years ago. Yeah, they tell, they also say it's caused by radioactive isotopes breaking down, but you know they should have already been broken down by now, right? Unless yeah. they're forming anew, exactly. <laughs> Which I think is what's going on. But how to put how to explain that process in terms, you know, easily understood by anybody is one of my stumbling blocks, I guess. 
and it isn't truly a writer's block at this point. It's more of a how do you how do you make those fourteen page math problems turn into a few words that actually make sense? Right. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> well, well, you explain it like this: there's another sun, the smoky god in the center of the earth. Right, and it's the size of a grapefruit. But it's putting off more energy than we get from our own sun. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 basically it's a white hole, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You want to try to explain to listeners what a white hole is? Uh, It's the antithesis of a black hole. That's Uh, right. It's the it's the opposite side, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Somewhere there's a black hole. Somewhere out there. Somewhere. (laughs) And the white hole is the exit point. One of many exit points. One of many exit points, that's right. A, a galactic disk black hole, like we think we have at the center of the Milky Way, is collecting, I don't know, a star a day in our time. The time doesn't mean anything to a black hole. Mm-hmm. Quite literally. The time is non-existent for a black hole. Once it right. goes beyond that event horizon... The physics is vastly different. Right. It becomes a quantum universe at that point. And everything is connected all at once without any space-time distance thing. There is none. Uh, That part, that concept is not part of that universe. So when it goes in, it comes out at the same instant. In fact, in some cases, it would come out before it went in from our perspective. Because we're not in the quantum universe. Everything is now in the quantum universe. And you have this phenomenon where when energy exits a white hole, it can form new matter as well. So in a black hole, you have energy and matter falling into a black hole, and nothing can escape it. In a white hole... You have energy and matter erupting from the white hole, and nothing can enter it. So, in all ways, basically, it's a conceptual opposite, except for that scale thing. And scale has no meaning in the quantum universe. So, that's as close as I can get to a simple explanation. The... Uh, extension of that is it's not just the earth it's every piece of matter in our universe the universe we experience every piece of matter is somehow connected as a white hole source to that black hole sink wherever it is in our galaxy possibly multiple galaxies but i doubt it Mm. unless they're just in comparative proximity what happens when galaxies collide well i don't know I, i expect it gets really really active you know, I, I, I see, you know, with a black hole, a major black hole, uh, the creation of not just new universes, but new multiverses. And so if black holes collide, there's no telling how weird it gets if they try to devour each other. Yeah. Um, and, and what happens at the other end? Do planets explode? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, apparently, maybe. Uh, I don't know if either one of you guys ever heard of him, but Tom Van Flanderen used to be. In oh, his yeah. Career. Yeah, he was the uh, 
chief astronomer for one section of the U.S. Naval Observatory. He knew his stuff, in other words. But he said, yeah, uh, I have this hypothesis. I call it the exploding planet hypothesis, that there used to be a major planet between Mars and Jupiter, and, it, and Mars was one of its satellites, and that planet exploded and cratered slightly more than one hemisphere of Mars, and it cratered parts of Earth as well. Must have been a big planet and rocky, but it absorbed more energy than it could expend in its normal cycling, and it exploded. That's his hypothesis. He stuck by it till the day he died of mysterious cancer. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Rick. I mean, either it could have been uh, had a, ma- a, ma- a major surge from its own internal white hole, or a civilization that was on that planet might have decided to build a large hadron collider <laughs> and tap into that energy source at the center, or accidentally interfere with it in some way. You see what I'm saying? I suppose it's possible. Um, it's not likely in that this was a a rocky giant, so the gravity there would have been something on the order of, you know, 17 times what it is here. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if it were a civilization, it would be a very ro- physically robust. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's actually been hypothesized recently, uh, and like in the last week. A number of theorists have stated that if there are aliens out there in the universe, they're not going to be little bitty guys. They're going to be huge because most of the rocky planets that exist are much, much larger than the Earth. And that doesn't mean that they can't develop life and even humanoid life or gigantic right. life. But but any aliens we encounter, if we encounter them physically and not just their technology, that they're going to probably be giants of some sort. Or, or they're going to be extended life forms, meaning, you know, like up in Michigan, they got one morel mushroom that covers... 1500 acres but it's all mm-hmm. one plant or one colony it's all one yeah. being if you will yeah does it communicate well yeah actually they do communicate amongst themselves some to some degree yep that's right interesting stuff for sure um I wanted to ask you this too while I while you're on the show I know that you used to have a, a, a big interest in Lewis and Clark have you done any more research on their their expeditions oh yeah um it continues as you know i found and i wrote this in the book uh that they were using a very specific encoding scheme a a a cipher that was dictated to them the use was dictated to them specifically to meriwether lewis by thomas jefferson to report back to washington city anything they found on their journey that might be a threatened to the security of the United States, quote-unquote. And that cipher appears in dribbles and drabs in the journals of the other members of the Corps of Discovery. Um, someone was teaching them to use it in case those someones, both captains, ended up dead before the end of the journey. The sergeants, right. the sergeants were going to have to take over those duties. But, well, they were quite a bit. They were quite a bit more concerned with uh, security of information than somebody that has a server in her closet, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there's that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. What you, what you were saying? 
So anyway, yeah, uh, and what I found most fascinating about this whole passage is Meriwether Lewis picked up on it real fast, um, and both he and Clark had been officers under Mad Anthony Wayne at Fallen Timbers, along with William Henry Harrison and a few other 'er ne'er-do-wells. But they would all have been using the same cipher base, um, same basic method of cipher for their ciphered communications. Um, so they were already familiar with it. But what is unique about this cipher is it has to have a key. And uh, it's the grand cipher, it's called. It was developed in France in, what, 1536 or something like that, some crazy long-ago time. And it held until 1893 before any one of the messages was ever decoded. And it wasn't 100% because he didn't have 100% of the key. In other words, you can't decode it without the key. Jefferson, being the uh, intellectual genius that he was, he probably used this method with a number of different correspondents, each of whom had his own key, and Jefferson kept it all in his head. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the man's intellect had to have been something bizarre, uh, off-scale type. At any rate, the it was the mandate to use it only if you found something that threatened the security of the United States, very young United States at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think maybe they did, which has been the subject of several novels already, and a few non-fiction speculative types. Um, And uh, what they found, we know that they went to some of the mounds, but there's nothing in the journals about what they saw or found or anything like that. I know that Lewis, coming down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh would have seen several such uh, bits of ancient infrastructure. Grave Creek Mound at what is now Moundsville, West Virginia. Marriott, um, Marietta, Ohio. Vast, um, what would you call it? Uh, intricate and vast system of earthworks. Uh, coming down the Ohio, you had some of the some of the stone fortresses that were just outstanding and, and at that time were intact because nobody had hauled off the rock for whatever purpose. But they were stone fortresses up on a high bluff that would, if they had even the barest semblance of some kind of artillery, say a Roman ballista, they could have controlled all the traffic on that river from a single point, at least past that point. And they could see 10 miles any direction with some of these. Um, so whoever built those was in the business of controlling or defending traffic on the river. And therefore trade and commerce and probably taking a large tribute tax or tithe. Or maybe all three, I don't know. But that, that is, the whole river thing is what was driving the core of discovery further and further west. They had to find a river route to the west coast. Um, it was not, as Robert J. Miller 
pointed out. It was not really about discovering unknown country. It was about claiming the right of discovery for known country using a river route from the interior. Controlling it from headwater to mouth. And that's what they wanted to do with the, the whole Columbia Basin. And did. And made it stick. At least so far. The Chumash still have a few issues with that. But they also, going back, I know we only have a few, really few more minutes left, but the whole core discovery thing, in between the lines of the journals, you get to read up on the Mandan, and they were fair of skin and hair and blue and green eyes, and uh, right. the, women, the women were very fair, etc. But at the end of that visit, in the spring, in uh, late February, early March, when they're getting ready to head west, Lewis wrote in his journal, tomorrow is the day we're all in good spirits. And I hear I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. The men are of great spirits and it will fulfill the plans I've been making for the last 10 years. Now, hold on. Hmm. Hmm. This is 1804. They only bought the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. And... It was 10 years earlier, was before Jefferson ever got in office. But Meriwether Lewis was a friend of the family, and for the two years before they left to go west, he was a personal secretary to the president in the White House. They had been planning this for possibly more than a single decade. So somebody gave them foreknowledge of what was out there. That wasn't on any of the maps. Jefferson also mandated to Lewis to stop at a place in Kentucky along the Ohio River called Big Bone Lick today. But it was a place full of mammoth skeletons and tusks. Uh, of course, Jefferson called them elephants. When he had been the diplomat to France... He went to the Louvre, and hey, there was one that had been excavated by a French expedition in 1729. It was on display in Paris. Dude, that's a lot of ivory we can trade if we can find more of them. That's right, that's right. So he wanted the boys to look for them on on their way west. Lots of Hmm. things, lots of interesting things about that journey that most people don't even consider. They got to what we call the Nez Pierce, and they had horses. Already, and and they traded for some of those horses to take west. We would today we call them Appaloosas, but the true Appaloosas have a unique genetic marker that takes well over a thousand years to develop throughout a herd. Right. Uh, well, this was in 1803. In so an herd. So, that so it's been it, there for a thousand years is what I'm getting. So, so you think that these horses have been there for a thousand years that they didn't come from the Spanish? Correct. There, there's all, very little Spanish horse blood in Annapolisa. Hmm. So where do you think the bloodline originated? With Norse, Norse ponies? It, there's some of that in there, but there's also Chinese horses. In right. There. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and a lot of other things go into that. And 
when the Nez Perce were finally hunted down by the United States Army in 1870, whatever it was, 76, um, their last remaining leader who didn't want the job in the first place, Chief Joseph, was wearing his medicine bag when he was captured. Inside his medicine bag was a one-inch-by-one-inch clay tablet written in Sumerian cuneiform. What? Hmm. And his story was, and remained till the day he died, that it was passed down to him from his white forefathers. Hmm. And that's not a paraphrase. Um, and it's, trans- now, it's translated as uh, a receipt for one lamb. That is paraphrased. Huh. Now, is that still around? I mean, is that at a museum somewhere? It's at West Point. Really? They, they still study his tactics. Hmm. <laughs> he he well, was he wasn't even a war chief, but his tactics were so good they still study them. Right. Well, what's the, what's the what's the official explanation then on uh, how he got a hold of that? I mean, it's, it's not like he uh, found it floating in the water from you know <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> no, and really, there is no official explanation. The army doesn't know or care. Uh-huh. The archaeologists say, oh, no, it's probably a hoax put on by some uh, 19th century reporter. Yeah, that's it. They just they publish anything to sell papers. That's right. Yeah, that's, that what, they, that's what they always say. Yeah. That's what they always say. Yeah. yeah. Particularly if you look up a newspaper account of a giant skeleton. Exactly. <laughs> or, or a dwarf, a, a or, tiny person. Or, yeah. Right. Yep. Well, that's all in, uh, let's see, I forget what chapter that is. 18, I think, in my book. <laughs> well, and there were, just, there were just so many 19th century reporters in the United States who knew ancient Samaria as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were running brothers. around, they were carving ogum and, and, and uh, uh, Norse runes, and man, just, yeah. just yeah. Yeah, that argument over the Kensington runestone is, well, still an argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as many people as there are arguing, that's how many opinions there are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you something though. I mean, I really, I'm. Uh, it's it, to me, it's kind of gratifying that there is a lot more attention nowadays being paid to some of these. Um, uh, how what, what would you call them? Anomalies. Out of place anomalies, out of place artifacts. Yep. You know, I mean, uh, uh, taken taken one at a time as they uh, as they used to be. You know, people would just kind of like shrug their shoulders and like, oh well, it's a hoax. But but now, uh, considering uh, how we're able to bring things like that together, it's just. I mean, it's it's hard to ignore. It's hard to ignore that these things. Don't exist, and they're not all hoaxes. Yet, well, it's the whole so smoke, many people. It's the whole smoke some, and fire thing, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, William of Ockham summed it up that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Usually, of, yeah, usually, not always, but usually. And you know what you see with this are the, these convolutions that people do, that the most elaborate extrapolations and and theories and like I said, convolutions they go through in order to prove something is not true. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to asking <laughs> questions, you know, you can take a, any good scientific hypothesis. It's proof or disproof, either way, depends on what questions you ask. Um, one of my favorite examples, and it's in the introduction to the Hollow Earth Physics book, which, by the way, will be titled Falling Up, <clears throat> is the uh, right triangle on the math test, and it says, find X. And the student has drawn an arrow up to the X and circled it and said, there it is. <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, that's not the answer that the teacher is looking for. <laughs> but my contention is, the way the question is stated, the answer is correct. Had he said, what is the value of X? How long is side X? You know, any of those questions that actually ask the question of what? Yep. The wrong answer. But he said, find X. And there it is. Yep. So There it is. But the right triangle, particularly as it illustrates the Pythagorean theorem, you know, um, the sum of the squares of the two sides equals the square root of the long anyway the pythagorean theorem is something that tells you how you can make a square corner in carpentry as an example right uh the amish carpenters that i know will use that right triangle three feet four feet and then five feet is the hypotenuse they'll make a, a right square triangle every time but if you say Anything about Pythagoras, they just kind of look at you funny. <laughs> you don't have to know the background to use the science. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the old, uh, the old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon, right? Where he runs off the cliff and somebody says, you can't do that. It breaks the laws of physics. He says, I, I never studied law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here it is, is the right answer if the question is that. That's right. Yep. <laughs> well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are almost out of time here. So, uh, Rick, uh, let me give you an opportunity to uh, uh, let you... Uh, um, let our listeners know more uh, where they can find out more about you, uh, find your books, uh, you got a website, things like that. Yeah, actually, let's start with that website thing. I'm admin for, as you know, the Hollow Earth Insider, and Dennis is, well, hiding from the world right now. But So I'm running it alone for the moment. I'm also the admin and a contributor on ancientamerica, with no N, dot com, where I put up some of the articles that I put into Ancient America, the Ancient American, the magazine, as well as a number of other contributors. I think we've got 41 contributors so far. Um, it's a pretty good website, ancientamerica.com. And, of course, writing for the magazine. And uh, The book is available from Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Smashword Diesel. I don't know if it's on iBook or not. but uh, And, of course... Um, Grave Distractions Publications. And there are a few copies of the first edition, just a handful, still available from Wayne May at Ancient American Magazine. But you, but, but you recommend the second edition? No, you should have a copy of each. <laughs> That's right. Get, uh, That's right. Get, get one of each. Yeah, they're small. Well, well, when do you, when do you think you're going to have your uh, Hollow Earth book out? I mean, uh, I'm going to make that one of my winter project priorities. So, oh, okay, 
hopefully we can get it out sometime in the next calendar year. Cool. Great. Well, I mean, I, I hope that uh, you can come back then and talk about that when you get it out. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Look forward to seeing it, too, to reading it. Well, I made a, a slide share presentation of it, uh, of the overall concepts, and I put it up on SlideShare to see, you know, kind of feel the market out. And right now it's at, I think, 372,000 views, so I think it's oh. the market. Yeah. Keep in mind, Rick, that uh, some people will download that SlideShare pre- presentation one way or another, and you'll be seeing that on YouTube, too. It <laughs> is. They already did? It already is, and I don't care because it's okay. not the book. It's just okay. some of the concepts. All right. All right. All right, good gentlemen. Well, we've got to wrap it up here. And uh, so, Rick, thank you very much for uh, uh, being with us uh, yep. tonight. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, I, I thank you for having me, and I'll get down and see you one of these days, Tim. Please do. Please do. And you know, and, okay. you know where I live. No, no, I was going to say, he knows where I live. Cool. <laughs> and listen, uh, be sure and, and give us a heads up when the new book comes out, because we do want to have you back on. Will do. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll flood the internet with the announcement. Okay. Well, so, uh, so will Brian, I mean, you know. Right. All right. Well, uh, Mike, uh, thank you. Rick, thank you very much. And uh, to our uh, audience, thank you for listening. We really appreciate you uh, being with us every week. So from uh, everyone here, I'm Tim Swartz. You have been listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. We'll see you again next week with another fascinating program. So good night from all of us. Good evening.